This is episode 12 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. And this episode, we're going to check in on the young Mao, talk a little about his childhood, and look at what he was thinking as a young adult. Mao Zedong was born on December 26, 1893 in Hunan province in the village of Shaoshan. Shaoshan was the ancestral home of the Mao clan. And so as the Mao clan village, just about everyone there was related to each other and had the family name Mao. Shaoshan was in a relatively prosperous farming region with a range of hills that the young Mao would explore nearby. Mao's father was a hardworking man who expanded the family's farm and eventually hired a couple workers to do most of the farm labor while focusing on selling grain and money lending himself. According to the criteria that Mao laid out in How to Differentiate Class Status in Rural Areas in 1933, this would make his family a rich peasant family. This is how Mao defined rich peasants in that work. The rich peasant, as a rule, owns land, but some rich peasants own only part of their land and rent the remainder. Others have no land of their own at all and rent all their land. The rich peasant generally has rather more and better instruments of production and more liquid capital than the average and engages in labor himself, but always relies on exploitation for part or even the major part of his income. His main form of exploitation is a hiring of labor, long-term laborers. In addition, he may let part of his land and practice exploitation through land rent, or may lend money or engage in industry and commerce. Most rich peasants also engage in the administration of communal land. A person who owns a fair amount of good land, farms some of it himself without hiring labor, but exploits other peasants by means of land rent, loan interest, or in other ways, shall also be treated as a rich peasant. Rich peasants regularly practice exploitation, and many derive most of their income from this source. End of quote. It's important to remember when you hear the term rich peasant that the adjective rich is only relative to other peasants. For someone listening to this podcast in a city in the industrialized world in the 21st century and trying to imagine how rich peasant families like Mao's family lived in the late 19th and early 20th century China, the key word here is peasant, not rich. In the case of Mao's family, they owned about three and a half to four acres. Mao himself began doing some work in the fields when he was about six years old, and when he got older, one of his main tasks was to haul heavy baskets of manure out to the fields. One of the best ways to measure standard of living is diet. According to Mao's account of his childhood, he ate eggs once a month and meat only three or four times a year. So again, while his family was prosperous, the key word here to keep in mind is peasant, not rich. At this point, all biographies, all biographies of Mao have to deal with the question of Mao's relationship with his father. After all, just as the family predates the origin of the state as an institution in the history of humanity, most rebels begin with some form of rebellion against patriarchal authority before they get older and move on to rebel against society more broadly. In the case of Mao, the main source we have on his childhood is his own account 
from an important book titled Red Star Over China. In Red Star Over China, an American journalist named Edgar Snow traveled to the Chinese Communist base area in northwestern China in 1936 and conducted a long series of interviews with Mao. This book was very important in spreading knowledge about and winning support for the Chinese Revolution as soon as, as, soon as it was published in 1937. Eventually, I'll probably want to do an episode devoted to Red Star Over China, talking about how it was produced and how it was used and what effect it had overall. But for right now, what's important to us about it is that it is the main source available on Mao's childhood, and what it contains is just what Mao said about his childhood, which was said in a highly politicized context in which Mao wanted this book to be useful for building support for his movement. In Red Star Over China, Mao describes his father as a tyrant and says he formed a united front with his mother and brothers to defeat his father. He writes about his father as a severe taskmaster who would sometimes deprive him of food. But what we also know is that his father financially supported Mao through his studies later on and made sure that he got a good education, even though his father hoped Mao would carry on the family farm and develop the family's commercial enterprises. The evidence is that Mao was closer to his family than he lets on in his autobiographical account in Red Star Over China. So what's going on there? There are two different but similar takes on this that I've found in the literature. In the more recent biographical takes on Mao, the interpretation is usually given, uh, the interpretation that's usually given has to do with the fact that rebellion against familial authority was in vogue at the time. After all, radicals and intellectuals were rebelling against old Confucian ideas, which championed family values, especially patriarchal authority. One popular expression of this rebellion was a novel published in the early 1930s by the anarchist writer Ba Jin titled The Family. And this was a wildly popular book. Uh, so in this uh, interpretation of, by the biographers, Mao exaggerated his conflict with his father in order to play to the trends popular with the audience who would read Red Star Over China, which, though it was written in English for an English-speaking audience, was immediately translated by the Communist Party into Chinese and used very effectively both within China and among overseas Chinese people around the world. In the other interpretation of the meaning of Mao's antagonism towards his father in Red Star Over China, and uh, this I found mainly in works written in the 1960s and 1970s, Mao's differences with his father are also considered to have been exaggerated but rather than seeing Mao as cynically trying to play to radical intellectual trends at the time in order to garner political support, Mao's take on his father is seen as a reflection of a broader generation gap in China that was felt by Chinese who had their childhoods between the 1890s and 1920s and was compared to the generation gap in Western societies that was felt in the 1960s and 1970s. Of course, it's not an accident that works advancing a generation gap approach to interpreting Mao's harsh take on his dad were written when a similar generation gap was felt in Europe and North America, and that more recent works advance a more cynical motive on Mao's part. I just noticed this difference while reviewing the biographical literature on Mao for this podcast episode, 
And even though you always know that the way history is written reflects the time the writer is writing in, you don't always get such clear examples of that as we do here. So in order to get to go to school, Mao had to raise funds from friends and family to cover not only his tuition, but also the cost of a replacement laborer to work in his family's fields. But eventually, Mao's father did warm up to the idea of Mao attending school, and he began to support him. In 1911, at age 17, about six months before the insurrection in Wuhan broke out, Mao went to the provincial capital of Changsha to continue his schooling. Even though it was far inland, Changsha had a foreign military garrison, and British and American gunboats patrolled the Shang River on which Changsha sat. When the revolution broke out, Mao decided to go and join it in Wuhan. Having heard that the streets were very wet there, he went and borrowed some rain shoes from a friend just outside of town in Changsha. But then on the way back into Changsha, the revolution had broken out there. And so Mao ended up walking up to a high point in the city and watching the fighting until the Qing flag was taken down and the new Han flag, a white banner with the character for Han in it, for the Han Chinese nationality, was raised over the city. Mao then joined one of the rebel units of the new army in Changsha, and I want to read you this uh, page from Red Star Over China where he gives his account of his time in the army. Many students were now joining the army. A student army had been organized, and among these students was Tang Shengchi. I did not like the student army. I considered the basis of it too confused. I decided to join the regular army instead and help complete the revolution. The Qing emperor had not yet abdicated, and there was a period of struggle. My salary was seven yuan a month, which is more than I get in the Red Army now, however. And of this, I spent two yuan a month on food. I also had to buy water. The soldiers had to carry water in from outside the city, but I, being a student, could not condescend to carrying and bought it from the water peddlers. The rest of my wages were spent on newspapers, of which I became an avid reader. Among journals, from dealing, uh, among journals then dealing with the revolution was the Shang River Daily News. Socialism was discussed in it, and in these columns I first learned the term. I also discussed socialism, really social reformism, with other students and soldiers. I read some pamphlets, pamphlets written by uh, Zhang Kanghu uh, about socialism and its principles. I wrote enthusiastically to several of my classmates on this subject, but only one of them responded in agreement. There was a Hunan miner in my squad and an ironsmith, whom I liked very much. The rest were mediocre, and one was a rascal. I persuaded two more students to join the army and came to be on friendly terms with the platoon commander and most of the soldiers. I could write, I knew something about books, and they respected my great learning. Uh, great learning here is in quotes so that you can tell that he's saying it ironically. Um, I could help by writing letters for them or in other such ways. The outcome of the revolution was not yet decided. The Qing had not wholly given up power and there was a struggle within the Guomindang concerning the leadership. It was said in Hunan that further war was inevitable. Several armies were organized against the Manchus and against Yuan Shikai. Among these was the Hunan army. But just as the Hunanese were preparing to move into action, Sun Yat-sen and Yuan Shikai came to an agreement. The scheduled war was called off, 
North and South were unified and the Nanjing government was dissolved. Thinking the revolution was over, I resigned from the army and decided to return to my books. I had been a soldier for half a year. Here, um, one of the things you see at the beginning of um, this passage from Red Star over China, uh, you notice where he mentions how he refused to haul his own water because he was a student. This is a, a, a theme that we're going to see repeated throughout the Chinese Revolution, where um, this issue of intellectuals going through a reform process where they initially felt themselves to be above regular labor and the need for people to be transformed so that they don't feel that they're above, so that intellectuals don't feel that they're above people who perform manual labor. This is a theme Mao returns to uh, multiple times in this, uh, on his autobiographical um, portion of Red Star Over China, and uh, it's something we're going to return to in this podcast uh, again because it's a major theme in the revolution. So here he's referring to himself being in this period when he was still a student and hadn't uh, gone and through a period where he uh, stopped thinking of himself as better than people who did things like carry their own water. After leaving the army, Mao explored some different schools before settling into the Hunan Normal School, where he stayed for five years. He developed more politically there, and we'll revisit him there in the not-too-distant future. But for now, I want to leave off on telling Mao's life story and look at where he was at in terms of developing his thinking in 1912. The first extant writing we have from Mao is a short class essay that dates from June 1912. And because it's nice and short, I think it's a nice opportunity to read it out and use it as kind of a snapshot for where he was at in his thinking at the point just after he left the army and had enrolled in school when he was 18 years old. The title of the work is Essay on How Shangyang Established Confidence by Moving the Pole. So, some context. Shangyang was one of the founders of the legalist school of thought all the way back in the 4th century BC. The legalists implemented a bunch of administrative and legal reforms which made the state of Qin, that's Q-I-N, not to be confused with the Qing dynasty that we've been talking about in the past, which made the state of Qin strong and which ultimately led to Qin winning out at the end of the Warring States period in China in the 3rd century BC. So one of the issues apparently at the beginning of the reforms that Shangyang advocated for the state of Qin was that he thought no one was going to trust in the reforms, that people might distrust whether they would really be carried out or that the state would really do what it was saying it would do. One of the main reforms was to make a set of laws, publicize them, and then to strictly enforce them and apply them universally. So it was pretty important to Shangyang that people understand that the laws would be applied and that legalist policies would actually be carried out. So. He did this thing where he put up a pole and said anyone who moved the pole would get 10 gold pieces. Here, let me read you a translation of the passage that uh, Mao Zedong is going to be uh, writing his essay about. So here, this is the uh, English translation of the passage in Sima Qian's work that Mao is commenting on in the essay. After the decree... Uh, and this is the decree incorporating the whole set of sweeping reforms. 
was drawn up, Shangyang did not at once publish it, fearing that the people did not have confidence in him. He therefore had a pole 30 feet long placed near the south gate of the capital. Assembling the people, he said that he would give 10 measures of gold to anyone who could move it to the north gate. The people marveled at this, but no one ventured to move it. Shangyang then said, I will give 50 measures of gold to anyone who can move it. One man then moved it, and Shangyang immediately gave him 50 measures of gold to demonstrate that he did not practice deception. So what we can see there is essentially Shangyang says he's going to do something. People think, no way, you're not going to give us 10 pieces of gold to move the pole. And he's like, I'll give you 50. They're like, no way, we'll do it and see that you're lying. But then he gives it to them and trust is established. So this is the thing that Mao is going to be commenting on in this essay. So, all right, here's Mao. When I read in the records of the grand historian about the incident of how Shangyang established confidence by the moving of the pole, I lament the foolishness of the people of our country. I lament the wasted efforts of the rulers of our country. And I lament the fact that for several thousand years the wisdom of the people has not been developed and the country has been teetering on the brink of a grievous disaster. If you don't believe me, please hear out what I have to say. Laws and regulations are instruments for procuring happiness. If the laws and regulations are good, the happiness of our people will certainly be great. Our people fear only that the laws and regulations will not be promulgated, or that, if promulgated, they will not be effective. It is essential that every effort be devoted to the task of guaranteeing and upholding such laws, never ceasing until the objective of perfection is attained. The government and the people are mutually dependent and interconnected, so how can there be any reason for distrust? On the other hand, if the laws and regulations are not good, then not only will there be no happiness to speak of, but there will also be a threat of harm, and our people should exert their utmost efforts to obstruct such laws and regulations. Even though you want us to have confidence, why should we have confidence? But how can one explain the fact that Shangyang encountered the opposition of so large a proportion of the people of Qin? Shangyang's laws were good laws. If you have a look today at the 4,000 odd years for which our country's history has been recorded and the great political leaders who have pursued the welfare of the country and the happiness of the people, is not Shangyang one of the very first on the list? During the reign of Duke Shao, the central plain was in great turmoil, with wars being constantly waged and the entire country exhausted beyond description. Therefore, Shangyang sought to achieve victory over all the other states and unify the central plain, a difficult enterprise indeed. Then he published his reforming decrees, promulgating laws to punish the wicked and rebellious in order to preserve the rights of the people. He stressed agriculture and weaving in order to increase the wealth of the people and forcefully pursued military success in order to establish the prestige of the state. He made slaves of the indigent and idle in order to put an end to waste. This amounted to a great policy such as our country had never had before. How could the people fear and not trust him so that he had to use the scheme of setting up the pole to establish confidence? From this, we realize the wasted efforts of those who wield power. From this, 
we can see the stupidity of the people of our country. From this, we can understand the origins of our people's ignorance and darkness during the past several millennia, a tragedy that has brought our country to the brink of destruction. Nevertheless, at the beginning of anything out of the ordinary, the mass of the people always dislike it. The people being like this, and the law being like that, what is there to marvel about? I particularly fear, however, that if this story of establishing confidence by moving the poles should come to the attention of various civilized peoples of the East and the West, they will laugh uncontrollably so that they have to hold their stomachs and make a derisive noise with their tongues. Alas, I had best say no more. In 1912, we can see Mao was pretty far from the iconoclastic rebel that he'd become within a decade. It's kind of funny to see the 18-year-old Mao, whose most famous quote might be, it's right to rebel, approving of the punishment of the rebellious by Shangyang. And the contempt that Mao expresses in this essay for the masses of Chinese people is pretty far away from the Mao who pioneered the idea that communists needed to trust in the masses and who advocated the mass line method of political leadership, which is characterized by the method of gathering the ideas of the masses in order to distill them back to the masses at a higher level. We'll talk about the idea of the mass line much more in the future, but suffice it to say for now that a key idea in that approach is that there's a deep understanding of the world inherent in the masses of people when taken as a group. So it will be an interesting question, I hope, to come back to in the future, to see how Mao's understanding of the masses of Chinese people changes over time from being so pessimistic in 1912 to being so optimistic in the future. If we look at Mao's development during the period before he became a communist, it can be divided into three periods. The first period here, which we saw in this essay when Mao was still just 18, Mao had the perspective of still supporting good rulers of a traditional type. This was followed later on by an anarchist period, and then finally he went through a period of searching for a new revolutionary politics and road to power, which ultimately led him to Marxism. We'll take up that process of development in future episodes, although in our next few episodes, we'll be looking at some other thinkers who were a bit older than Mao and who were more central to the initial development of Marxism in China, as well as the overall milieu in which radical politics developed in China during the early warlord.